I'm Dr. Gary Linkoff, founder and medical director of City Facial Plastics. Thank you for tuning into Face Facts, a podcast where medical professionals discuss everything related to facial aesthetics, plastic surgery, and hair restoration. Hey, how are you, man? How are you? Well, I can't complain, man. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. It's kind of surreal, you know, seeing you on the web and then now you're here with me. So I really appreciate you stopping by. Hi, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for inviting me. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think you're one of the most influential consumer advocates in the hair transplantation community. Well, yeah. I'm certainly the oldest. So, um... <laughs> well, you know, that that's, you know, that that's part of it, being around for long enough to see things kind of progress and change over time, you know, is definitely, you know, something that's, that's important for us, you know, younger people to kind of look up to. So absolutely, just to kind of get things going, like what got you interested in, in hair restoration? Well, I've been losing my hair since I was 21. I noticed it right after college. Yeah, it was traumatic, you know, and obviously, you know, you, you, you deal with a different type of hair loss. How old are you, sure. by the way? I'm 35. Okay. So you know, when, and you, you deal with a lot of young guys, I'm sure, who are dealing with common androgenetic alopecia. But when it hits you at a relatively young age, it's, it really impacts your life in a way that people who aren't losing their hair could never uh, fully imagine. So to cut to the chase, I started to do my research. Everyone back in the day wanted to sell me lotions and potions. I tried everything. There were guys who wanted to perform hair transplant surgery on me, and there was really nowhere to transplant the hair. So I kind of felt some, something was wrong. So I stepped back and I was lucky enough to, I guess, have the wherewithal to step back and say, yeah. you know what, what's happening here? This is really odd. So I right. did my due diligence, did my research. I found the drug Finasteride, which okay. I believe changed my life. Then I decided to write about my experiences. That's how it all started. That's great. And then the effects of Finasteride, like how quickly did you see the change to your hair? I was a, an early responder. So okay. I would say that this is atypical. I, I started to notice a cessation of hair loss and regrowth within about three. I saw a cessation within three months and I saw significant regrowth within six months. That's great. So you have to understand this is back in 1994. I was using Proscar. It was just uh, approved for benign prostate hyperplasia or enlarged yeah. prostate. And I read an article in the New York Times about it potentially being tested for hair loss. Because one of the side effects was these guys were stopping, they were growing hair, who were on yeah. this for, and these were older men. I found a doctor willing to prescribe it, and I guess the rest is history. Yeah, that was pretty early on, for sure. Yeah, minoxidil had a similar kind of course in that it was used, you know, as like more of an IV injectable for ICU patients. And then people were noticing that, hey, for like blood pressure management, you know, and they were yeah. noticing people were growing their hair. So now there's actually been a move back in some ways to oral minoxidil from the topical. I have to tell you, we, we get more questions through the American Hair Loss Association and through my broadcast about oral minoxidil than we have in the last 23 years. And I don't know if you're aware of, of the Global Hair Loss Summit that we put on in December, but mm -hmm. there was a talk from a, uh, a Spanish physician who yeah. has been prescribing oral minoxidil uh, to his patients. After that summit, I would say at least 70% of the members in the IAHS are now prescribing low-dose oral minoxidil as an adjunct to finasteride or to those who either had adverse side effects or were concerned about taking it. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice option. I'm starting to prescribe that myself. Uh, it was prescribed to me. So my background, how I got into hair, just really quick, is that, you know, yeah. 
meeting each other for the first time. You know, and I started with uh, with Jeff Epstein uh, as kind of his remote arm in, in New York. And whenever he'd come to New York, I'd I'd join him, and you know, slowly kind of growing my practice and and just you know increasing my my skills. And what and, what year was that? When did you start? This was uh, in 2018. So pretty, pretty recently. And then we were together for almost two years and then or like a year and a half. And I kind of branched off and um, I was running my own facial plastics practice. And then I kind of pulled hair. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how was how was working with Jeff? You know, Slave, I slave driver. He was a great mentor. Uh, but at times, you know, I wasn't necessarily like a colleague. It was more like, you know, kind of a apprenticeship where he was sort of the the head guy and and I was just a student and that's kind of how it felt. So, you know, there were some limitations, you know, to, to kind of how open I could be in that relationship because you feel like you're you're there with your boss, you know, as opposed to just the colleague. So, yeah, at the end, once we kind of split up, we're still, you know, very friendly. And he's like, you call me Jeff now, you know, because I was calling him Dr. So, yeah, there was a little bit of that just because. Yeah, again, I was going to actually ask you to call me Mr. Cobrin, but <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. The opposite. Yeah, no, yeah. so. You know, I, I learned a ton, obviously, and uh, spent a lot of time with him. And whenever I'd go to Miami, I'd stay at his guest house. So it was an invaluable experience. And, and I think it's very hard. So this is kind of a different topic. But I was just going to say, it's very hard to learn hair well, you know. And so it's, that's... It's it's almost impossible, really. Yeah, that's one of the big limitations, I think. Because there's no, like, concrete track. You know, a lot of people who end up doing these fellowships through the ISHRF. ISHRF, yeah. yeah. A lot of them, anyway. They, they don't have, like, their residency that they finished, and they're not on a specific track. They, You know, they took a little bit of a detour, let's say. You know, and then let, me, kind of... let, me, let, me, let me be more candid. You're being really diplomatic. I, and I think it's important for your, for your viewers and listeners to know this. Yeah. Um, most of the guys hanging up a shingle claiming to be hair transplant specialists or experts are just hanging up a shingle. They're either buying a turnkey device. They've maybe taken a course or a weekend course. They may have gone to a workshop and paid for this workshop. There is no true, true pre-turnships or internships. Only a handful of surgeons worldwide really yeah. have the time on tissue to, say, to, to actually perform this surgery. And it's being promoted now more than ever as a commodity right. when this is one of the most difficult and elegant and nuanced cosmetic surgeries and you're a plastic surgeon yeah. that there is because people don't realize that it's a team effort every step of the process dictates the end result if right. you happen to have a technician that day or or an rn or whoever's working with you that day that is not feeling great that's not implanting well that is just not into the game your yeah. transplant is done. Well, you also have to be able to jump in and do the job, you know, so that's that's yeah. the other thing. There's so much to talk about. But just to take a step back, so what I was going to say was that with Jeff, you know, when I started with him, I had a full head of hair. If you go and look at my website, you'll see me with, you know, a lot of hair. And that's yes, not- I, I checked I checked you out before I decided to do this. I want to make sure that I was speaking to someone who I felt comfortable with. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've seen what you've been through. Yeah. So, you know, my story. And so yeah. it, I didn't get into, you know, hair transplantation for that reason. You know, I, I had alpicariata on my legs since I was in med school for like 10 years now. And it never really bothered me. I didn't really care. I, I, you know, they offered me steroid injections. I'm like, it's on my legs, who cares? And then right. over time, pressed up to my arms. And then I had a spot at the end of fellowship, right before I started with Jeff, there was like a spot out here. And I remember Jeff was injecting me with steroid and, you know, and that eventually came back. And then I had a, another little episode where the brow started to thin and I, you know, started kind of thin on the temple area. You know, that also came back. And then 
I'm pretty sure this is kind of interesting, actually, because I'm pretty sure I had COVID back in January of 2020. And the tail end of that, when I was feeling better, finally, because it was this mysterious thing going around in New York City, you know, all the, you know, the urgent care is like, yeah, everyone's getting sick with something. We don't know what it is. I was flu negative. Yeah. It was definitely that really high fevers, like over a week, whatever. So then that got better. I developed Bell's palsy knocked out the right side of my face. And then as that was improving three weeks later, I just started to shed just, I mean, nothing was going to help. I mean, I tried PRP, just, you know, nothing was helping. It was just a mess. And then it kind of like just all went away. And then now it's starting to show some signs of, of a very, very early uh, return. And I'll show you, uh, this is what it looks like now. So right. it's baby hairs and you know it's it's kind of strange looking but you know i'm not shaving it i'm just kind of seeing what happens i just want to tell you that i again you know another reason why i admire you is you you didn't stop you didn't allow that this to stop right. you continue that you were face forward on camera you shared your experience with everyone you know in, in my case kind of being the first guy and i was young when i started yeah. talking about male pattern hair loss and how it affects our you know how it it could potentially erode our self-esteem as our hairline erodes and just how it affects our lives. That wasn't the sexiest thing in the world to do. Trust me. Initially, even in the press, I got a lot of crap. I mean, it was looked at as I was almost, you know, overly vain. And what is this guy talking about? Why is he um, comparing it to a disease? Because I stated clearly in my books and also in most of the articles that I was in initially that hair loss is kind of a cancer of the spirit. Yeah. And it, it affects people who deal with it in ways that those who don't can never even imagine. Well, so, so what you've been dealing with is profound. And especially, you know, like you said, you knew that you were, you had alopecia areata, but you had no clue. You never know where it's going to go. You don't know if it's going to yeah. turn into universalis. Right. And I, I think you have a really important story to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to me because I again, like I just chose the field because I took Jeff's course as a fellow. And I'm like, this is really cool. I didn't know much about hair before that. It was on our exams and, you know, for ENT. And like, you know, most of us would get those questions wrong. Just read the same chapter in the same textbook never were exposed to anything related to hair transplants. And then in fellowship, they told me, oh, you can go to Miami and take his course if you want. There are a few other options. I'm like, oh, I want to try that. And I just thought it was really cool and very meticulous. I'm kind of into the, that's why I picked kind of head and neck anatomy and, and facial plastics to begin with, because I was always drawn to kind of like more tedious tasks that were more kind of fine rather than, you know, bigger surgeries, even in head and neck, you know, there are big wide open neck dissections that, you know, I was, you know, I did in fellowship and, and residency, but I didn't really want to do that in practice. It just, you know, wasn't me. So I, I love the kind of more fine kind of work. And, and uh, yes, yeah, so I got the exposure there. And then we kept in touch. I'm like, I'm going to start starting a practice in Manhattan when I finished fellowship. And uh, he's like, yeah, if you want to work with me just part time, let me know. And then it just kind of developed into this really great, like almost like an apprenticeship, but I was, you know, I was operating on, on my patients. Well, and then now let, let me ask you, so what were, what were the cases like initially? I mean, were they patients that were drawn into Jeff or they were, were they your own patients? They found Jeff first, you know, and then, well, this is the true story. So if, they, yeah, if let's hear it. they weren't willing to pay his rates, you know, they would come to me. I mean, generally yeah. speaking, you know, and I would work with his technicians. And I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in Miami. And then when he was in New York, just, you know, shadowing, being a first assist for him for, for everything from hairline lowering surgery to actual transplants, he would throw me in with his team, you know, you know, let, let Gary work for an hour here or there, 
So eventually I felt very comfortable with all the different steps of the procedure. Yeah. So then when it came time to actually doing my own cases, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, I, I was like, all yeah. right. and it was with his tech. So I'm like, okay, like they know what they're doing. I know what I'm doing. Like it, maybe things took a little longer, but like we got through it. Yeah. I think this is a really important story because now you have Tom on tissue. Now you're a skilled hair transplant surgeon. I'm not saying that you didn't have the, the hands, you know, when you started, but the reality is most consumers have no clue that wait a second, if I'm going to pay less for an associate, this associate may only have one case under his belt, you know? And I think it's really important that you shared that because most consumers have no clue that that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and the skill set is very different. I remember Jeff making fun of me. He's like, you're going too slow with the extractions. Like, look at the text. Like, they were going five times, six times as fast as I was. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I mean, I know how to suture and I know how to dissect tissue, but this is different. Like, there's a different instrument in my hand. And now, took, were, the, were, were the techs that, that you're using, were they, were they technicians? Were they RNs? Were they um, nurse practitioners? So his techs have been with him for a long, long time. And most of them are just techs, like maybe MAs. Yeah. He does have nurse practitioners who are also technicians and yeah. do other within the practice. Oh, I just uh, want to make it clear that, you know, the, the, yeah. the ISHRS is really anti-tech um, being involved in, in, in the surgical aspects of things. But I see things differently. If it's legal in your state, if these technicians have the time on tissue, a lot of times they are better extractors yeah. than physicians. So yeah. the team is really important. So for any organization to say only surgeons should perform surgery as far as this particular surgery, right. I think they're doing patients a real disservice because the majority of real great extractors, at least in this, in this game, they're not doctors. Yeah. That, that's it, a skill set that most guys don't want to learn. Yeah, it took many, 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 I mean, you know, a few dozen cases until I had the speed of like a good, you know, extractor. And now it's really nice because I, and Jeff always emphasized this and I'm thankful to him for it because he always said like, you know, don't just rely on the tech, on the text to, to do the extraction, especially Absolutely. for my team. Like you have to do this yourself and, and it took time and, you know, you, you can't just like, you can't, the case can't take all day. So well, you need to. Well, Jeff, Jeff is a, you know, essentially a founding member of the IHS. He came on board about a year after I founded it, which is, it just mm -hmm. turned 20, which is insane. Jeff was really, you know, he was really involved especially at the beginning he's been doing this for a really long time so there's no doubt that he knows how to train his techs yeah and yeah. because he because he he started he's been he's the guy who had the hands on tissue and the time on tissue for so long yeah. so i think you're lucky that you found him yeah no it was it was really kind of amazing how everything worked out because my uncle in manhattan was starting his own space he's a chiropractor but he started his own um you know just kind of like a wellness space and with a couple of different providers under one roof and that's when jeff was looking for a, a different home in new york city and that's around the time when i joined him so everything sort of worked out really great because then he was operating out of this new space where i was normally and so it was just whenever he would come to town i stopped everything that i was doing and i would just be with him and his team and yeah. when he was there then he would feed me patients and then also you know find my own so and then ultimately he's not really coming much to new york anymore at least definitely not operating I and mean, with covid hitting and that was the decision before COVID, right before covid i also so, think he has a young kid now and he's kind of like slowing down and yeah and now with travel like he always said this like now you know people love to go to my before it was like hard to kind of necessarily get them there but now it's so easy to, to just hop on a plane and, and go somewhere for for the day get the procedure and then go home so people well, are i think here's the good news for new yorkers there are 
there's a handful, sadly, but they're still really good, of really great surgeons yeah. in uh, New York tri-state area. Not easy to find, you know, uh, that, that's part of why we have the IHS, but you know, you're somebody that I took a, a close look at. And again, you know, you're, you, you've been doing this for a while. You had a really good pre-turnship or internship with, with Jeff. Just the way that you've kind of expressed yourself online, I could see that you really care for patients. Look, I, I, I have a tendency to kind of take over any conversation I have because I've been doing this for so long. So I apologize if, if I'm doing it. <laughs> no, no, but, I don't apologize. But I, I, I like speaking to young, young physicians who yeah. are kind of getting to this game when it's so dangerous. It's so much more difficult for consumers to navigate and to find really good surgeons because they're bombarded with, I mean, we're on Instagram right now. Yeah. Some, whoever watches this, they're going to go to their feed and they're going to see ads for 10 other doctors. And they're going to they're going to they're going to price comparison. They're not going to know where to go and what to do because it's been sold as a commodity for so many years. And it's not the other hat that I wear with the facial plastics work. I teach a course for like uh, injectables and non-surgical things. And uh, and of course, I do surgeries as well. But the closest that I can kind of equate this to because for facial plastic surgery, there really aren't too many people who have like no proper training and took a weekend course for doing rhinoplasty. I mean, it just doesn't really happen. I mean, you have people who shouldn't be doing rhinoplasty doing them, but but not to the same extent. But the closest like analogy would be filler, you know, people doing Botox and filler. And you just have so many poorly trained people of no proper background, don't understand the underlying anatomy of the face. Whether they're doctors or nurses, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what degree they have. But, but that's, Doc, that's another thing that people are not aware of. Consumers think that, well, it's just filler. What can go wrong? Well, you know what? Your entire face could, you know, could your, your skin, you've got necrosis at the side of your face. Yeah, blind. And you can lose a, lose a chunk of your face. You can go blind. Yeah. You know? And, and again, the way that these non-invasive procedures are being reformed to me, are being promoted to me, it's, it's criminal. Yeah, yeah, in the right hands, in the right hands, it could be, it's, it's relatively, you know, non-invasive and you can get really good results, but you have to be really skilled. Yeah, so you're right about that. That's a good comparison. Echelon, you know, above these injectables. And yet it's being done, like you said, by people who've taken a weekend course and think that they have the know-how to proceed. And there's the technical side of it, but there's also just understanding what to do for what patient and just taking a step back and saying, could this be a different hair loss condition that I have to think about? So there's just so much knowledge that needs to be acquired beyond just the technicality of moving some hair around. Well, I can tell you that, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this, but one reason is the larger organizations don't want to admit it, but they lost the control because they wanted to kind of keep the reality of hair transplant surgery close to their vest because if they sold it as a real surgery, as something that took a lot of uh, heavy skill set initially, then it wouldn't have been so easy to sell. The old school guys like Bosley, for instance, you would see the infomercials and the commercials of the Mm -hmm. hair flying from the back of the scalp onto the front, magically having a full head of hair, and they would sell it as a simple outpatient procedure like you were going to get your teeth filled, when in fact, that's not the case. So they got themselves in trouble years ago. And then as the barrier to entry got less and people can just pick up a turnkey device and a machine and then go on an app and get some technicians to come into their office. Right, SmartGraft and Neograft. Yeah, consumers. Well, SmartGraft doesn't do that. Neograft does. SmartGraft mm-hmm. is a, the one thing I like about SmartGraft, as far as if you're going to get involved with any device manufacturer, is they don't have your, their hands in the doctor's pockets and they do not promote technicians. So mm-hmm. they kind of, 
they want their device out there, but they want the doctor who has it to have some training. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't provide them with access to technicians and stuff like that. So it's different. But yeah, you don't need to get any of these devices to, to learn. You know, really all you need is a, is a punch, you know, or different size punches. Yeah. And I mean, there isn't enough out there about like what the best punches are. Like what we talk about the ISHRS with the Y and the Trevellini being the most kind of dominant, you know, and sort of proper hair clinics or practices. I mean, that's not something you see widely advertised. I mean, those aren't the companies that are putting out all the big ads and all of that, you know, so so people don't necessarily even know, you know, what these devices are, yet they're technically the most advanced and and they leave the least amount of scar. Well, currently, they're they're the most used by real hair transplant surgeons. But the reality is, and, you know, I'm not a physician, but I've been doing this for a very long time, is you know, there are guys out there who are still doing it by hand and they're using, you know, either their, their own types of punches or just even punches off the rack that are, you know, 0.08s or 0.09s. And they're able to get incredibly, you know, beautiful graphs, but it just takes time and it takes effort. The WA system and these other systems, they just happen to be the most heavily promoted through the ISHRS, but they're good mm-hmm. systems. Yeah, yeah they're well. good. What are your yeah. thoughts on? Robot. I mean, I, I put out a video on, on some of my thoughts, but you know, where do where where do you stand on this artist? And um... well, to give to, to give full disclosure, I uh, worked as a consultant for Restoration Robotics for two years to try it, in my view, to try to get them on track okay. as far as moving in the right direction. While I was uh, working in a consulting capacity, I I did convince them to start to utilize smaller needles or punches. That's good. So, and that made a significant difference. And it was my suggestion, uh, which they ended up taking, mm-hmm. to create a smaller footprint, separate the the chair from the device, and also to offer a handheld device along with the robot in case there was issues. You know, the, the reality is you can only do so much work and get so many graphs out with that robot. Right. And in in most cases, like- all the line, all the stars have to be aligned for it to really work well and end user or the person that's using it has to understand how to set those parameters perfectly. So yeah. with that said, ended up separating from, from the company, but the entire time my mantra was, I will not sell a robot and I will not tell my listeners that I would lay down for a robot. All I'm going to do is try to get you to where you need to go. So this thing can get better. This is what I can say. I would say mm-hmm. that the, the majority of robots that have been sold, in my view, are being sold to physicians and clinics that may not have enough time on tissue to use the technology yeah. properly. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with the technology, but I don't see any advantage to the patient if the practitioner doesn't know how to use it. Yeah, there, there's a, I won't say the name, obviously, there's someone, another hair transplant surgeon in town who recently purchased a robot and was so unhappy with the size of, you know, the holes in the back that decided to sell it, right? Well, to wherever he's going to sell it to, but he's not using it anymore. And this was just in his office for a few months. And I don't know, I think that's kind of telling because I, mean, I think if you, if you really do the comparison and, you know, you're able to see the side by side and you have one system that gets you great graphs or even the manual and leaves, you know, minimal kind of footprint in the back and, Another one that's leaving you with sizable scars. You know, I don't know. I don't know how someone. Well, here, I, listen. I, I, I've been here from the beginning, and when the robot first came on the scene through the American Hair Loss Association and 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 my program, I would just let consumers know. It's in my view, it wasn't ready for prime time. Yeah. It took many many years before I was um, willing to to actually take the opportunity to consult with them because I thought that maybe we can improve things, and we did. 
I mean, mm -hmm. tremendously. Things have changed a lot. But with that said, it's it's completely user dependent. And even the larger graphs, here, here's the thing. Initially, when the robot is set up, it's usually set up by technicians who used the largest needle or, or punch so that yeah. things can be easy. So they're not necessarily um, looking at the patient saying, okay, it looks like we're going to be able to get really nice graphs out using a 0.8 or a 0 0.09 or whatever it is. Yeah. They're just throwing the regular punch. So that's why this, this guy was seeing larger holes. It is possible to have really, to get really good graphs and to have smaller punctate wounds with the robot. But most people, at least in my view that I've known, don't okay. really know how to use it. Only a handful of guys, Ken Anderson in in uh, Atlanta, he knows how to use it. Uh, Bob Bernstein in New York knows how to use it, but he doesn't just use it exclusively. There's some guys who know how to use it, but yeah. in my view, it's only a handful. The technology yeah. itself is really cool, and I think that this surgery lends itself to robotics, but in general, like I said, most guys who have their hands on it aren't using it properly. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's... it's great that it exists uh, I, I just think that maybe it's not quite ready for prime time for, for most people like you said like there are some maybe super users out there but you know it's a lot of people think that's how they're going to start their practice as long as they get the robot everything else falls into place and it's well it's I, I actually spoke i spoke at a conference for the robot and i was actually i was asked by i think someone who worked for the company essentially the question was would i have robotic surgery or or and, and then it was like you would definitely have fue or over fut and i i was very i point blanked them and i said or i i was very honest and i said look for me being my age and at the time i think i was 50 i said i've avoided hair transplant surgery this entire time using medication if i chose to have hair transplant surgery because of the way i wear my hair i would mm -hmm. certainly go for strip because yeah. in my view I can get the most vital and, you know, the, the best possible graphs out of the sweet spot and use 100% right. of those graphs to move to, to where I needed it. And because I wear my hair longer, it would be fine for me. And I said, I'm not sure if I would, if I had FUE, if I would go for the robot right now. And I said that I was very honest. People were silent. They didn't know how to deal with that because I was speaking at this conference, but that's yeah. the truth. If you know who you're going to, and if you could see that that physician is getting great results using the robot, then sure, have yeah, a robotic sure. surgery with that doctor. But to sell it right. as state-of-the-art, this and that, you know, any device, whatever device a clinic is using is only as good as the person that's wielding that device. Yeah. And that's important that, that, for patients to know. There, yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, I think hospitals did this with the Da Vinci robot before really anyone knew its exact benefits and advantages for different types of surgery, including you know, prostate surgery and whatever else. Now it's used for just about everything. But before anyone knew like its true advantages, they were just selling it and using it as like a, a marketing ploy, you know, and it's like, I have five robots. How many robots does your hospital have? And it was just a way to kind of one up. And yeah, get but you, you know, you know that the main marketing guy for DaVinci at the time, who ended up working for uh, Restoration Robotics as the, I, I think he was hired as CEO. There was, you know, there was some lawsuits against the company. And this guy admitted in court that the DaVinci was sold to physicians who were not skilled in laparoscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. So they were they were essentially admitting that they were going for the low hanging fruit, yeah. And that I think that speaks volumes. Of, so when people think of robotic surgery, it's sexy. It really is. Like I get yeah. it. You think it's going to be an exact science? You think it's going to be much more exact? And right. the reality is, I'd rather have someone take some cold hard steel who knows what they're doing. Yeah, to my well, body. Be, yeah, I'm mean, like Bernstein is like a kind of a pioneer in the field and. You know, like you, you could 
be a person like him who says like, oh, I want to, you know, now pioneer this whole robotics yeah, yeah. and go that route, right? Someone who really knows what he's doing. But then like most other people who really know what they're doing, if something's working well in their hands, they're not going to just switch over to the latest, greatest thing that's also a million times more expensive. Like it just doesn't make sense unless you're, you feel like compelled to because of the marketing sort of pressures, you know? Well, but, that's what they, you know, as the industry has, I should say, devolved and as more people have gotten into the industry, some of the old timers, even the really guys with great skill sets mm -hmm. have jumped in that direction because purely for the marketing aspects of things. Yeah. And for most of these guys, it backfired. A few of them, it worked out well. And like I said, you know, you got a guy like Bob or you got um, uh, Scott Alexander in, uh, mm -hmm. in, in Arizona. But these guys have unique skill sets. They know what they're doing. They can make that robot work. So they can leverage that marketing, but they also know what they're doing. So mm -hmm. the patient's going to be in good hands. Right. Yeah, that makes but sense. That's, yeah. But that's rare. And for me, it may be just, you know, because of who I trained with and things that he, you know, uses. And that's probably like the biggest influence on me. But also, like, I'm always looking at it from the perspective of what's best for the patient, you know, not what's necessarily best for my practice. And I think if you do it that way and you say, like, well, okay, what works well in my hands? What are the limitations of some of the technologies that exist out there? Just be honest with people. You know, I mean, if someone has mastered the robot, great, go out there and talk about it and show your results. And it, like you said, it just doesn't work for, for most people. And it's just not really necessary even, you know, because then that brings up the it, cost. It, 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 it is not, it, it isn't necessary. And the reality is with all these things, if a physician has to pay a company is attached to any company, then that, that, that cost is going to be translated to the patient, or they're going to have to cut corners in other ways to make it more affordable for the patient. Either way, it's not a great idea unless all that information is provided to the patient ahead of time. This is why it's going to cost you more money, because it costs me more money. But patients aren't aware of that. Because of competition, when these guys make these heavy investments, sometimes they have to cut corners in other ways. And again, this has nothing to do with the technology. This has nothing to do with the company itself. I'm not saying that it's not great technology, because I was compelled from the very beginning to learn more about it, because I do think that this surgery, I'm going to repeat myself, lends itself to robotics. Yeah. But right now, it is not necessary. Maybe one day it will be. Yeah, I think one day it'll be super helpful and useful, especially once, you know, we have cloning and you just have as many graphs as you need. And it's super labor intensive. The, the pool of great technicians is also quite small. And that's something that I've, you know, learned in New York City, where, you know, we have some talent, but it's very, very small. That's another huge, huge con in this industry. It's, I mean, it's, it's so sad that consumers have no clue. They just walk in there and they, they, they'll go on your credentials and they have no idea that someone who just, you know, flew in from, you know, Tallahassee and got drunk the night before is performing surgery on them yeah. that morning because they're just looking at the doctor's credentials. They don't realize who's performing a lot of the surgery. And these are the technicians. Right. You know, that's why I think it's important for a guy like you to say, look, you know, these are the people I work with right. or I have a full-time staff and let your patients know. Yeah. I'm sure you do. I'm lucky with, you know, the way my setup is where, you know, I'm a kind of younger practice, so I don't have the funds to have like all these people on full time, but we have some good talent in the area. So for my surgical techs, whether I'm doing, you know, a, a facelift, a rhinoplasty or, or a hair transplant, I mean, I get to work with excellent techs who are kind of like, they freelance in a way. But I think unless you know what you're doing, and unless you're kind of ingrained in, you know, kind of the right pool of people, you know, you won't have great folks, you know, by your side. If you're, if you're sharing techs 
with other really great practices, yeah. then and these guys have a lot of experience, then exactly. that's that's fine. You know, I mean, yeah. The thing about you know a lot of doctors don't want you to poach their techs. So there's a whole thing where that you know techs are kind of the really good techs are kind of kept undercover. I mean, honestly, people who are watching this is a really effed up industry, but the entire cosmetic surgery field. Yeah, is a problems with it. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like one of my techs was with you know the Unger team for 15 years, you know, and then yeah. with COVID, decided to go on his own because he saw you know the potential, he saw whatever opportunity, and uh, yeah, and now like he prioritizes my cases and whenever i have a case he's he's with me and he's incredible and and you know there are other people kind of from a similar sort of pool so yeah but i'm just saying that the more experience you have as a surgeon the better you can pick your technicians whether they're full-time or, or with you or not 100%. but if you don't know what you're doing then you're going to just assume that just because someone writes on a resume that they're a tech for x number of years that they're good but that couldn't be further from the truth for you know for everyone who writes their attack and that's uh, actually really a really good point because and it also speaks to the reality that so many doctors even in new york city or los angeles right here in beverly hills they have no clue yeah. what they're doing when it comes they're just buying machine, hanging up a shingle and hiring technicians and hoping for the best. I've known guys who's, who've destroyed their practices, guys who have had a 20-year track record with no really bad reviews and they do one bad hair transplant mm. and their careers, I mean, they're, they're in a panic. So yeah. for the doctors who are watching, if you, if you want to get into this field, really learn, to learn and know what you're doing. You, you're dealing with people's lives here. People yeah. think it's just hair, but you know, you, you have a bad hair transplant you F somebody up, that that's that destroys your life. And because we don't have the option of cloning at this point, you know, you you don't have too many tries. It's not like, especially with FUE, you can't just keep trying over and over. You know, I do because of Jeff, the body hair stuff, but it's never as good. You know, it's just never, like the regrowth rate is not as high. Yes, you can do neck, we can do chest, whatever, but your best bet, and the same goes for really any surgery, especially rhinoplasty, actually, your first chance is your best chance to kind of get it right. And with hair, you can, of course, separate it out into different sessions over many years. But, you know, assuming you do, like, the first session, you know, in, in a kind of a, you know, bigger way, like, if you screw that up completely, like, it's it's a huge problem. You well, know, these you guys are selling 4,000, 5,000 grams overseas, whatever it is. You screw up 4,000 right. grams, you're done. That's a finite amount of, of, of tissue and hair that could be moved. You can't repair that. These guys' lives are, maybe you can make them look normal. Maybe you can remove some of the grafts and recycle them and, and cut them into smaller grafts and, and make the person look a little bit more normal, but he will never, or she will never be the same and never have a completely normal life. And right. I'm going to make this clear because I think my phone is probably dying. So I don't know how long I have, but I will tell you that a lot of women think they, they could jump into the chair. You know, it's being hair transplant surgery is being marketed to women more than ever. I don't know if you agree with me, but you know, most women with androgenetic alopecia do not make great candidates for hair transplant surgery. They do not have the same type of donor hair. They have diffuse thinning, miniaturization all around all around their scalps. And I'm glad that you agree, but so many doctors will say, well, I can give them hair for a few years and they're happy. Mm. That's not the way to think. Right, no, a few years is, is not what you're trying to gain here um, with hair. And no, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, after a certain number of years, you know, just like with men, I mean, some, some female pattern hair loss will stabilize and, yeah. you know, they become a candidate but i agree especially early on you know there's some really young women with with severe parting and yeah i mean they're they're, they're... You know, there's, there's a there's a great 
um, um, website and resource here on Instagram, Women's Hair Loss Project. Okay. And if, if you want people to understand the reality of, of women dealing with hair loss, that is the place to go. Mm-hmm. And the, the person that um, started this has gone through everything and okay. talked about all the trials and tribulations and came through the other side, uh, being able to live a decent life. But a lot of the people on that side and a lot of people that contact uh, this person through Instagram, they've had transplants, they've been sold everything. And frankly, they're, these are young women in their 20s, their lives are destroyed. Yeah. And by That's some it. really famous, well-known physicians who are plastering themselves all over Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while I have this opportunity to be with you, I want your listeners and your viewers to know you got to be careful out there. I know that's the message that you put out there as well. Right. right. No, absolutely. And then and again, we went through so much and, and it was awesome. But yeah, like kind of the effect of social media on, on consumer behavior in plastic surgery in general, but specifically hair, you know, a lot of people gravitate to, you know, the accounts with there's just the greatest number of followers because they just assume, oh, that, 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 that must be the best surgeon. And they'll just do whatever's on that, you know, on that page when they call the practice, whatever they're offered, they'll, they'll do it. Um, all, all I can tell, tell your, your viewers is that if you are making a choice to have surgery based on an Instagram account or based on you know, a price or based on someone's popularity on social media, you're an idiot. This surgery has the capacity to change your life for the better. But if it's slightly off, your life can will never be the same. It is that difficult. It's not like, you know, if you have a bad boob job, you can hide them for a while until you get them fixed. This is front and center. This is on, this is the first thing that people see. So if you decide to have, like a lot of women are having their eyebrows done, I see some of the worst in New York, some of the worst eyebrow transplants I've ever seen come out of your city. Yeah. You know? So yeah, people I, really have to do their due diligence. Yeah. No, again, luckily, you know, training with Jeff, I mean, that's a procedure that he's uh, really, really good at. Um, he's, he, he's one of the masters. Yes. Sure. You know, I picked up a lot of skills there. But, yeah, it's it's easy to just not put enough hairs. It's easy to get the direction wrong, to get the curl wrong, to get the shape wrong. I mean, there's just so much room for error there with the eyebrows. So, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. There, there's just there's so much that is encompassed within you know hair transplantation and i also wish that there were like younger people like me who are as enthusiastic about the field like there really aren't many i did one of these uh, podcasts with um shaver uh who i think you know she works with bernstein and she's yeah she's you know and she's really in it for the right reasons and very dedicated and and that was awesome you know just just kind of well, she she we recently brought her on about uh, three years ago onto the ia address and uh she actually um gave a talk for the global hair loss summit on transgender hair transplant surgery and i have to say that she she not only presents really well mm-hmm. i mean she's good this she has really great hands she really cares about what she's doing she has a conservative approach kind of like like bob bernstein my goal is you know i got into this so young that while i'm still young enough to see the changing of the guards yeah and and my goal is to now that things are a mess to kind of like provide consumers with access to the new leaders of this field and also help consumers to separate all the hope and the hype and all the nonsense you know from the reality of, of what they can have. Hair transplant surgery is an incredible surgery if it's done right. Sadly, we see so much bad surgery these days. People still have that stigma that hair transplant surgery looks pluggy. Yeah. You know, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. And I almost feel like it's kind of sad that, you know, it takes someone like me who's just, you know, kind of a few years out and just trying to do the right thing to get out there and like talk about it. You know, there should be, I think, more 
sort of senior leaders who, you know, are out there talking to consumers about some of what's being done and maybe why. Doc, you know what? You, you take, you take the lead. If no one, no one else wants to put the time into it. They had such a good thing for so many years. They were making so much money for so many years. They didn't necessarily understand what, what, it, what they needed to do. They, they don't know how to grind. They don't know how to get the information out there. And they always kept the information so close to the rest because they didn't want people to know the reality of the surgery because they felt it would scare people away. Now it's necessary that they, that, that consumers know this. Otherwise they're going to be really damaged out there. Yeah. So I'm glad you're I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I appreciate that, Spencer. Yeah, and to do the surgery well, I have a buddy in Alabama who's asking me recently, like, oh, like what if I want to get into hair? He he's a oral surgeon but trained in some cosmetic surgery, so he does a couple of other things. He never really did any hair. And he was like, Just tell me like the truth. Do you think I can like figure it out? And I'm like, I wanted to be as nice as possible and he you know, he has good hands, but I'm like this is going to take a long time if you're, if you're serious about it. It's a lot of people add it as kind of just the additional revenue stream rather than it's, like, it's, it's put on their menu. If you, any of these companies that are trying to sell you a device, that's what they're saying. They're telling you how much money you can make. Consumers don't know that you can put a machine in your back room, hire technicians and a doctor can make an extra $10,000 bill every day for doing nothing. Yeah, you know? that's how, and that's, that's how it's sold. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's the, it's the wrong approach and it, it's not a sustainable solution. I mean, I'm amazed at some of these places, how they can keep that going. I guess the work is good enough and they just kind of sustain some sort of hair practice. You know, it's getting more difficult, but if you look at the old school guys like, you know, Bosley, for instance, who have come a long way, but initially, you know, the work wasn't that great. A lot of damaged people out there, but they put out enough advertising. You know, there's 200,000 of us waking up every day realizing for the first time that we're losing our hair. So that's the first time they're taking a look into these things. So they don't know the history. They don't know that it's possible to be effed up from the surgery. So they just keep plugging away, no pun intended, and they're able to survive because hair loss sufferers are so vulnerable. They will buy anything, try anything, subscribe to anything just for hope. So it's evergreen. What are your thoughts on people traveling to, say, Turkey for cheaper surgery? Because, I mean, I don't know too much about it. I just know that there are some good clinics, but then a lot of people come back and, and they're kind of messed up. We have a handful of clinics who are associated with the IAHRS, but we have, and this is not hyperbole, we have applications from Turkey and India every day. They are with checks in hand. They want to be a part of the organization. We have turned down hundreds of, of applications. I think we have four in Turkey or three or four doctors in Turkey. Listen, if you're willing to travel and you go to a real hair transplant surgeon in Turkey, you're going to have a, a, a good outcome and you're going to save some money. But these guys can only perform so many surgeries. What normally happens is, you know, they're jockeying for position with these guys who are willing to provide a surgery for, you know, 1200 euros or, or, or $1,500 with expenses mm -hmm. paid and right. real real hair transplant surge, surgeons in turkey even though it's less expensive it's still going to cost a few thousand dollars minimum yeah. for a relatively small procedure it's going to cost right. uh, you know five thousand us mm -hmm. so if someone is going to travel yeah. the, the truth is either, either come to the american hair loss association or the right. ihs or you can see who you're going to by price anyone yeah. in india or turkey is going to charge a relatively uh, significantly more expensive price than their local competitor if they're good. Interesting. Yeah. So that that's a really good point. Something for people to look out for. Great. Anything else, uh, Spencer, that I want to add uh, for, for yeah. my list or just uh, anything in particular you're excited about? I know we talked a lot about the cons and, you know, things that we'd like to see, you know, maybe improve, but anything that you're kind of truly excited for that's on the horizon or... I'm excited for, this is not to sound promotional because we don't sell anything. This is all educational, but, you know, the Global Hair Loss Summit is um, 
you know, we, we had such a successful event in December that we're making an ongoing educational resource for physicians. So for the first time, guys like yourself, when you first started, like you said, it was hard to find a way to learn. We're going to be yeah. providing access to physicians who want to get into this game to actually learn how to do it the right way. So I'm excited about that. Now, with that said, there's only going to be a handful of guys, maybe a few hundred guys willing to take these courses. Yeah. But consumers are going to know that at least they have the time on tissue, I keep repeating that, and the education to you know be in the specialty. As far as what's happening for hair loss sufferers, that's really exciting. Not much has changed in the last 20 years when it comes to medication or treatment. It's important that your listeners know, your viewers know that not all PRP is created equal. Right. A lot of it is a con that, you know, even doctors don't know what they're re-injecting into your scalp. So go with somebody who is truly a hair loss specialist like yourself and don't go to a dentist to get PRP. Right. And, and then you have some doctors who are trying to be clever and they're trying to make their own PRP tubes so that it's even cheaper. And, you know, again, not based on any science or anything like that. I mean, I personally use the M-Site system. I think there's, uh, you know, they have the best research. Peter uh, Everts is, is, is a good scientist uh, in that company. And I actually did a study on needleless PRP, which is uh, under review now with a, a machine called the Jet Peel. And yeah. it's kind of interesting. So um, one of the founders of that company was a patient of Jeff's. He was an eyebrow transplant patient. And uh, he was in our kind of general office space for doing the transplant. He's like getting the PRP, you know, for his procedure. And he mentions this machine that can kind of do transdermal delivery. And it's been used for like 10 years for other applications, uh, wound cleaning, like um, for in aesthetics, like for facials. So it's not like a brand new technology. But the handpiece that they uh, came up with for PRP with this kind of shield technology to keep everything in rather than, you know, dispersing this product right. all over the room. Um, that was novel. So he told us about it. And I'm like, you know, Jeff, this is interesting. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what do you think of this. Should we try it? He's like, yeah, maybe do a, like a, a study with them. So that was the beginning of it. And I had a small pilot study of 14 patients, all with male or female pattern hair loss. And it was kind of amazing that it really did work. I mean, we did like three treatments, one month apart, just like all the other PRP studies are, are organized. And um, I did global photography and then different survey um, kind of questions to figure out, you know, what the change was and extremely high satisfaction rates, zero pain. I mean, there's no, there are no needles, you know, it's just cold air and this like high pressured uh, kind of system that delivers the PRP. And I didn't really think it was going to work because I, I read their initial studies and the depth of penetration was about like 1.8 millimeters. So I'm like, well, you know, the bulbs are going to be deeper than that, closer to four millimeters. I'm like, is it really going to penetrate enough? And then at the virtual ICHRS conference just, you know, recently, it was really interesting because there were a couple of people, like senior people in the field talking about it. When they do their injections for PRP, they started using more superficial injections like into the dermis with the thought that maybe it's now diffusing down as opposed to deeper injections into the scalp. And I thought that was super interesting because I'm like, well, I mean, I'm telling you the study, like it looks like the results are very solid and you know, hopefully it'll, it'll be published soon. But I'm like, it's just, it was so much more superficial than, than the bulb, but it kind of worked. So you, you know? you, you're, you're not abrading the scalp at all? You're not using a dermal roller or anything? To, to no, scalp? no, it's, it's yeah. dermal infusion of, yeah. of 
well, anything you put in it. So um, in, in this case, it's the person's PRP, and it's usually five cc's. So it's an M-size 60 cc kit, super concentrated. So down, so I just take five cc's of plasma, and the rest of the plate, all the platelets are just in that five cc. Because it takes some time to, to distribute all of that. And you can cover, you know, the, the main part of the scalp with just 5 cc's. Whereas if I'm doing injectable PRP, I'm, I'm using usually closer to about 12, 12 to 14 cc's to kind of deliver well, it. So well, much- well, well, we'll talk more. I'd like, like to get more information on that. But uh, I am, I've been um, approached and, you know, we actually had a, a company called TrueDose on the Global Hair Loss Summit. And they created an algorithm and uh, kind of a a protocol where people can actually kind of gauge a more accurate dose of PRP for each particular patient. I don't know if you know anything about that, but um, we're going to be presenting that a a little bit more through the Global Hair Loss Summit and the Ball Truth. It's something that I think I might love to see physicians get their hands on because at the very least, everyone's going to be able to input their protocol, input their their dose so that we can have a more, you know, it, it would be put into the algorithm where eventually people will be able to figure out or doctors exactly what dose works hmm. for what type of hair loss Interesting. you know cons- consistently i think that's pretty exciting stuff yeah th- that is and, and the more like knowledge sharing that we do as a community the, the better you know everyone is so that that that's great yeah i definitely love to hear more about it. Uh, well, and it, talk we yeah. I, we have we could talk forever my phone is dying that's good yeah. all right but thanks so much for joining me really appreciate it it's kind of eye-opening experience for me and uh, yeah, just appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, so thank you very well, much. Well, no, I, I appreciate the invite, and I'm sure that we'll be speaking again soon. And you know, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Okay, so, best. Right. take care. Bye. I will. Bye bye.